you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's going to be on page 12. Page 12. We come to chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. We come here after God had confirmed in chapter 17 his everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. After having done that, here once again, God appeared to Abraham. As we have seen over the past six chapters, from chapter 12 and continuing, God repeatedly appeared to Abraham. We see this, in fact, you could see this, that, that these are the scenes that, that Moses is recording. The scenes of God appearing to Abraham. God appearing to Abraham in order to do something. That is to work out his faith. And though God had already been dealing with Abraham's faith, there was still more work to be done. Both in Abraham and, as we will see today, in Sarah. There was more work to be done because, like you and me, Abraham and Sarah were a work in progress. And now we can fast forward in the Bible uh, to the great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and confirm that the characteristic of Abraham's life was faith. He was characterized by faith. He's remembered for his faith. Yes, yes, and amen. That is absolutely 100% true. But fast forwarding only to Hebrews 11, seeing only that the dominant characteristic of his life causes us maybe to at times miss out on the fact that he, like you and me, had ups and downs. Ups and downs. And yet, we could say he, he had foes. He had foes. He, he, had, he had enemies against him but greater still, he had a friend, a friend with him. One writer says it this way, if we are beset by an unseen foe, we are also befriended by an unseen friend. Great is our adversary, but greater is our ally. As we come to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18, we read about the, the appearance of this great friend and ally. Look at it in verse 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, verse 1 makes it very clear that the Lord appeared to him. We have that word here, Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalization, all capitals, uh, which is indicating to us that this is the covenant Yahweh, the God. This is the seventh time that God had appeared to Abraham. And the text here says that the Lord appeared and Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So this is what we would call another theophany or a, a visual manifestation of God, where, where, where God appears to man in a physical 
uh, in a physical way, in a physical manifestation. But verse 2 actually says there, there are three men. So verse 1 says the Lord appeared, and then in verse 2 it says there were three men standing there. So, so we must ask ourselves, well, well who, who are these three men? In, in, in what, what are we talking about here? Well, well, in verse 1, as we just said, the Lord appeared, we see, verse 1. If you look down to verse 10, we find out that the Lord spoke. If you go to verse 22, the men, quote-unquote, went to Sodom, and the Lord stayed with Abraham, and then in verse, nine, verse 1 of chapter 19, we find that these two men are referred to as two angels. So what we're getting here at the beginning of chapter 18 is certainly a, a visual manifestation of God. But what we have here are two angels and the pre-incarnate Christs. That is, Jesus in the flesh before he came born of a, of, a, of a virgin. So we could actually call this a, a theophany, a, a, a visual manifestation of Christ before his incarnation. These two angels along with Jesus are, are, are called here men because they are embodied. As we read the text, we find out that they, they were visible to Abraham, that they spoke, that they ate. They, they, were, they were embodied people. That's what we, what we get here. Abraham visited by these three men, Jesus and two angels. Now, what Abraham understood about who these three men were in the moment is disputable. The text does not exactly tell us what Abraham understood in the moment. Now, as the, as the story unfolds, we're going to find out a few things that would certainly lead someone to a conclusion about who uh, at least the one man that is Jesus would be. But nevertheless, the actions of Abraham here indicate that he knew something. He knew that at least, at a minimum, these men were, were worthy of great respects. We find that they come to Abraham and Abraham is still living in the same place from when he separated from Lot. You'll remember that he and Lot separated. Lot chose to go towards Sodom, and Abram stayed there near where? The Oaks of Mamre, which is near Hebron. And we find here in the text that he is still living in a tent, which Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that he continued to do just that. We find that it's the afternoon. It would have been hot, and old Abraham is sitting by the door likely to get a little bit of ventilation. While he's sitting there, he sees these men. Now, there's, there's no lead up here. It doesn't say that he sees them far off, walking over the, the, the hillside. It says they're there. The Lord appeared. So they may have just literally appeared, and which might also call into to question what Abraham may have thought about these men as well. Nevertheless, they appear, and Abraham jumps into action immediately. There's an appearance of three men. We see what Abram does next, the rest of verse 2. It says, and when he saw them, what did he do? He ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord. Now, this is a different word, Lord, than verse 1, Lord. These are different words. They it's the same word. It's a different word. 
Did you get that? It's the same word, it's a different word, okay? Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after you have passed on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went, qu Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the, the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. And he took curds of, of milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Hospitality uh, was a Near Eastern custom. So when we read this account, the emphasis here is not that the men were welcomed by Abraham. That's not, that's not the significant part of this because hospitality was a thing. The significant part is how and to what degree did Abraham care for the men. And this becomes more obvious to us as we continue reading the story into chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, the two angels go to Sodom by themselves. And when they get to Sodom, the treatment that they receive at Sodom is very, very different than the treatment that they receive from Abraham, which tells us something. It tells us of what friendship with God versus friendship with the world looks like. We see this dramatic and striking difference between Abraham and the people of Sodom. Well, as, at, as these men come to Abraham, we, we can see a few things about Abraham's, Abraham's response. We see his respect and his humility. He, here in verse 3, he bows himself to the ground. That's a sign of humility. It's a sign of respect for someone. And he refers to himself as your servant. Again, what he exactly understood about these men we don't know, but he certainly was placing himself in a subservient role. He, he was very sensitive to their physical condition, right? In verse 4, he brings water to, to wash their feet and offers them shade under the tree. He was concerned about their personal comfort. And then, of course, food. And what is hospitality without food, Right? What is Baptist fellowship without food? What is Near Eastern uh, hospitality without food? Surely there's food. And there was. There was food. And he actually says, um, to, he offers them a, a morsel of bread is what he, what he, uh, what he offers uh, first. Um, we can see that in verse 5. While I, while I bring a, a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. Now, a morsel doesn't sound like very much. Well, in fact, whatever he thought he meant or whatever he did mean, he brought something very, very different. Because what happens to this little meal with, with some bread, it turns into a feast. And all of it's done, as, as you, you hear it read, there's, there's running around, there's, there's quickness to it, there's haste, there's, there's a, a sense of urgency that is going on here, and generosity. In verse 6, 
Uh, it says, and Abraham went into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. Now, um, nobody knows what a sea is here. I don't know either. But uh, I didn't know either. But, but in total, in, in total, what, what we're actually talking about is seven quarts of flour. Now, I'm not a baker, but seven quarts of flour seems like a lot of flour uh, for three men to have a morsel of bread. The point is there's generosity here. Abraham is seeing these men and he's treating them in a special way. But not only was it with the, the bread, he went on in verse 7 and he gathered a calf and he killed a calf in order or had a calf killed in order for them to eat. Now again, this might not seem that special to you and me, but eating food, eating, uh, excuse me, eat, eating meat at this kind of time, in this kind of way, was only for special and rare occasions. This was not a normative practice. It's in the middle of the day, and they're rushing around to, to, uh, to make up this meal, to, to uh, give this spread to these three men. It tells us something about the nature of this visitation. Abraham did not do this all alone. Clearly, Sarah was involved. We also see that there's a servant involved here with the calf. Uh, this act of hospitality, though, he, Abraham was personally involved in it. He, he, didn't, he didn't farm it all out. He, he himself uh, was involved. Even in verse 8, it says that he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He, he watched over them. He, if they needed anything, he, he was ready to, to, to help them. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, uh, there's this great verse that, that may actually be alluding to this very story. It says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, hospitality, by definition, actually is to strangers, now, hospitality actually isn't how we treat our friends. Hospitality actually is our, our care for people we do not know. But here in Hebrews chapter 13, there's this vision of entertaining strangers or, or giving hospitality to strangers, and, and thereby you're actually entertaining angels. Well, again, Abraham, Abraham not only entertained angels, but it was even, it was even greater than that. Consider it. He entertained the Lord. The, the, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Once again, in this time, instead of just speaking to him, he came for dinner. He came to Abraham's for dinner. One writer says, this is the only place in Scripture before the incarnation that the Lord ate a meal with a human being. That same writer goes on to, to say that these meals are, are communal. And in this case, it's an exercise in spiritual intimacy, which this all fits together. Because later on in the Bible, we find out that Abraham is called what? The friend of God. This speaks to this, this sense of relationship that God had with Abraham. It communicates closeness and familiarity of the relationship that they had which we'll see more of next week when, when in the end of chapter 18, God discloses to Abraham, the Lord discloses to Abraham what's going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. But here in chapter 18, 
As the Lord and these angels visit Abraham, Abraham ministered to them. Abraham ministered to the Lord. Knowingly or not, he ministered to the Lord. Writer Warren Wearsby says it this way, all ministry must be first to the Lord. All ministry, all service, all giving must first be to the Lord. Colossians 3 verses 23 through 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Our service, our ministry is first, it is primarily, it is ultimately to the Lord, unto the Lord. Any service, any hospitality is unto the Lord. And the New Testament is very clear about our, the role of hospitality in the life of, of, a, of a Christian. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saint, seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Or think of Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus is, is talking about the final judgment. And, and he says, for I was thirsty and you gave me food. And I was, uh, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I, w- I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry or, or feed you or or thirst and give you a drink? And when did we see you a, a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. As Abraham is ministering to these men, he's ministering to the Lord. And the principle for you and me is that, that, that when we minister to one another, when we minister to others, we do it as unto the Lord. Hebrews 13 reminds us that you don't know who you're actually ministering to. You could be entertaining angels unaware, or even better yet, in the case of Abraham, the Lord himself. Well, as the visit continued, we find that the Lord not only was there for Abraham's hospitality, uh, for, for friendship with Abraham, but also to build up Sarah's faith. And he does so by appealing to his own power. Look at it in verse 9. And they said to him, they, the men, said to him, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tents. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, if, if Abraham was, was not paying attention in the first eight verses of, of, his, uh, of this story, uh, or if we weren't paying attention in the first eight verses of this story, verses 9 and 10 should remove all doubts about, about who is here, about who these men are, and about who, namely, uh, the one man is, verse 10, the Lord said, that's Jesus, 
who, in fact, it is. Verse 10 is a clear recitation or a repeating of chapter 17, uh, verse 21. If you just look back to chapter 17, verse 21, and this is the Lord speaking, says, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Jump to chapter 18, verse 9, verse 10, and now Jesus is saying that's going to happen. What the Lord said in chapter 17, I'm saying to you again in chapter 18. This is the Lord. And though he's talking to Abraham, right, that's who he's addressing here, he was communicating with Sarah. Because where was Sarah? She was in the tents. She was in the tent behind him. And so she's hearing all of these things too. She's listening. And that's not, uh, the, the, the scriptures tell us just that. Verse, verse 10, and Sarah was listening at the door, uh, at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? After the, the hot, think, think, think about the, the, uh, the hospitality moment in verses one through eight. This is a great moment, right? These, these angels and the Lord himself, again, what they knew, but, but this, this great moment, uh, this great moment where Abraham and Sarah, like they, they uh, step up to the plate. They, they treat these men well. They provide the meal. They're, they're doing the things. Um, we, we might call that a, a triumph, right? He, here's your moment. They show up at your door. What are you going to do? They get it right. But as we have seen throughout the texts, especially as it relates to Abraham, what follows triumph but trial? And in the very next breath, after they have had the meal, the trial comes for Sarah. And it comes just like that, doesn't it? There's no great setup. It's not, there's no dramatic music. There's no, no change of scene. They're all just still sitting there. And, and the Lord makes a statement. First asks the question, where's Sarah? And then secondly, he makes, he makes a statement, an announcement that the promised son would in fact be born to her. And here, after this great triumph, comes the trial. And, and why is it? Why is it that, man, sometimes that's frustrating, right? We want to live in the triumph. We want to live on the hill. We want to live on the mountain. Like, let's, let's just live where everything's always good. Why, why do I have to go back to the trial? Because faith grows through trial. And God, God is not out for, for you just to have a happy life. That's not the point of your life. That's not what God is doing. We want that. That's what we want. But what God wants is for your faith to grow. Why? So that you become more like Jesus. Why? So that he gets more glory. Because this is all about him. It's not about you and me. And so after this great triumph comes trial in a moment. And now Sarah's on the spot. How will Sarah respond to the trial? God has just put it to her. He put, put the, 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 the promise to her again. What will she do? Will she be faithful? Will she believe the Lord? How will she respond? 
And verse 11 tells us, it reminds us that, that Abraham and Sarah were not young. They were 99 and 90, respectively. They were advanced in years. And the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah, which means she was past her childbearing years. And so what does Sarah say to all of this in verse 12? She laughs to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord, talking about Abraham, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> after, after I'm out of commission, now it's going to work? <laughs> it hasn't worked for 90 years. Now that I'm past the time, now it's going to work? Sarah's looking at herself, isn't she? And she hopelessly and faithlessly, it says, laughed to herself. Now, we might dis dismiss this laugh of Sarah as, you know, kind of a, a passing moment, a passing doubt uh, of unbelief. But, but John Stott writes this, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him, to God. Unbelief is no small matter. Unbelief is doubting God. Unbelief is sin. Now we might think it's just, just our weakness that, that we can't believe. But, but really what's happening here, it's a, a distrust of God. And though the text specifically says here that, that Sarah says it to herself, you, you and I ought to know this, we're never actually talking only to ourselves. That the Lord hears you. The Lord hears me. The Lord knows your thoughts. And the Lord knew Sarah's as well. As Sarah had been listening to the Lord, the Lord was listening to Sarah. And he rebukes her in verse, starting in verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? God heard her. God heard her unbelief. God knew her thoughts. Psalm chapter 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Can you imagine, though, being Sarah in this moment? Sarah thinks she's, she's in private, right? She's, she's behind the tent, tent door. She can't be seen. She's, she's listening, but silently speaking to herself. When the next thing the Lord says is, why did Sarah laugh? I mean, can you even imagine? Wait a second. I, I didn't even do that out loud. How did, how did he know that I laughed? Well, the Lord was confronting her. Graciously and kindly and importantly, confronting her skepticism. Now, we don't know if Abraham ever told Sarah about the promise. Now, the, the text never tells us that when God told Abraham, that Abraham then told Sarah. You would like to believe that husbands and wives might talk to each other. Uh, but nevertheless, 
He may have told her, and she may have refused to, or been unwilling to, or failed to believe it. In either case, whether Abraham did or didn't, is not the most important part. Because here, from the mouth of the Lord, she heard the promise. This time next year, I will return, and Sarah will bear a son. She heard the promise and still responded in unbelief. And why? Because Sarah was looking at herself. She was looking at her own circumstances. She was looking at her own condition. She was looking at this thing saying, this is not possible. This is not possible. God God cannot do that in my body. That, that won't work. My body doesn't work like that anymore. She had no vision of a miracle. She had no vision of God doing something that was impossible. And so looking only at her own condition, she concluded that the promise was not possible. But more than that, more than only looking at herself, she was doubly or secondarily or even maybe ultimately, doubting the power of God. And not only was it this evaluation of herself, but it was also an evaluation of God himself. And she perceived that her position, her problems, her condition was such that, well, of course that could not be true because fill in the blank. What God had said, yeah, but look, look at my situation. I mean, come on. That can't be true. Look at my situation. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's what God said. But what you need to know is, let me tell you why that's not going to happen. Let me tell you why what God had said doesn't apply to me. Let me tell you why that, that my life, my circumstances are greater than what God's word has said. She perceived her position her problems as greater than God's power. And it's a real danger. We might think of this as as calling it like we see it. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of realistic for a 90-year-old woman to say, I can't bear children anymore. That's not an unreasonable thing to say. However, when God says to you, when God says to her, this time next year, I will return and you will bear a son, And she still laughs in unbelief. This is a willful faithlessness that we see here in Sarah. And so God replies with another question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Then he repeats the promise again. At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. The question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful, some of your footnotes in your Bibles might say, for the Lord? Basically, the question is, will you doubt the unlimited power of God? Is there actually anything too difficult for God? Is that what you're saying, Sarah? If God is able and he is able, then we can trust him in whatever he promises. And this is not some hypothetical idea, is it? 
We have, we have story after story in the Bible. We have verses after verses in the Bible. We have life experience on our side that tells us just these very things. We have stories like the, the children of Israel after the Exodus, led into the wilderness, pinned against the Red Sea, the Egyptian army uh, coming towards them. Certain death is upon them. And what does Moses say to them? But stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And from that moment, what happens? The sea parts, the Red Sea parts, <laughs> the Red Sea parts, and they walk across on dry land. You've heard that story so many times, it doesn't even bother you anymore, does it? The Red Sea parts, and they walk, a million plus people walk across on, on dry land. It's an unbelievable story. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Joshua, Joshua is fighting a battle, and, and, and the sun is starting to set. And what, what does God do? In ways that we don't understand how this could ever happen, the sun stands still. And they finish the battle victoriously. God promises that, that his son is going to come, born of a virgin, of a woman who's never known a man. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. That can't happen. I know, I know our culture is, is nutty with biology, but let me tell you, that can't happen. And it happens. What is too hard for the Lord? Jesus, three days and I will rise again. Literally, bodily. Three days later, what did he do? He rose again. What is too hard for the Lord? Job chapter 42, verse two. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Luke chapter 1, verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than any, than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. One writer says it this way, nothing is incredible for those in covenant fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too marvelous for him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, of course, and yet, Sarah continues. Her faithless laughter actually led to more sin. In verse 15, it says, but Sarah denied it. In verse 14, the Lord says, why did she laugh? Sarah denies that she laughed. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Unbelief ought, ought not to be treated lightly. Unbelief leads to more sin, and that's what we see with Sarah. It's not a small thing for her to doubt the, the promises of God, and it's not a small thing for you and me to doubt the promises of God either. Uh, our doubts lead to other sin. And sin, this sin, as any sin, is an offense to God. Now, thanks be to God that there is forgiveness, that God forgives even our, our doubts. God forgives our skepticism. God forgives our unbelief. 1 John 1, 9 is clear about that. And that God is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he is faithful. Thank God for that. 
God does not give up on us. He did not give up on Sarah either. This isn't the end of Sarah's story at the end of chapter 18. We can point out the failure of Sarah and how God is coming to her to help her faith. And that's what he is doing. He's giving her repeated promises. He's giving her an opportunity to understand. He is calling her out on her sin. Love does that, by the way. We move on in the scriptures and we find that Sarah actually does grow in her faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says of Sarah, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. And when she was past, when she was past the age, since she was considered, she considered him faithful who had promised it. So, so here we're seeing this, this act of unbelief. But what we can know of Sarah is that Sarah grew in her faith. That's really helpful. That's really encouragement for you and me. That's good encouragement for you and me. Maybe you've, you've been had times of doubt. Maybe you have times of faithlessness. Maybe you have times where you've questioned God. Your story isn't over yet. Your, your life doesn't need to be characterized by unfaithfulness. Like Sarah, you can come to the conclusion, you can have your eyes open to see that this one, God, the Lord himself, is faithful to what he has promised. This isn't all about Sarah this morning, is it? We ask ourselves, what are we doubting God today about? What promises of God are we doubting? What do we think is too hard for God? Maybe you think that it's too hard for God to save you. And that your sins are too great. That you've done too many things. That you've done irreparable damage. How could God ever save you? Maybe you're too far gone. Yet the invitation of the gospel never, never qualifies for whom salvation is for other than for those who would repent and believe. The invitation of the gospel is to whoever would repent and believe can be saved. It matters not the degrees of your sin. It matters only if you will repent and believe. If you will come to him, come to Christ to find rest for your souls, as Matthew chapter 11 says. Maybe there's some here that that wonder if it's too hard for God to forgive me. Could he forgive my sins? Like maybe, maybe that person's sins over there, or maybe their, their sins, but, but my sins, can mine really be forgiven? I mean, there's people in my life who, who are str- troubling, have trouble forgiving me. Can God really forgive me? The answer is yes. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are Red like crimson, they shall become like wool. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing too hard for God. And this doesn't only go for unbelievers on the forgiveness front. Christians, there, there are some of you that are, are, are weighed down by your past sins. And you wonder if you're actually forgiven. You're living, you're living in light of those sins still today. And you wonder if God actually does forgive you. And you wonder if, if this, this is my lot in life. And I go through with this guilt and this shame the rest of my life. 
God offers to you the same forgiveness of 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, purity before God. We may wonder, can I be restored? Man, there's been a lot of damage in my life. Can, can I be restored? Can I be made whole again? When 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that in Christ we are a new creation. You're a new creation. We're all damaged. But in Christ, God gives to us a new heart. He makes us new again. God takes broken things and he makes them beautiful. Some of you may wonder, is it too hard? Is it too hard for God that, that, that I could even believe, that I could have faith? Maybe you look at yourself and think, I, I don't think I could actually even believe. I have too many doubts. How could I believe? How could I actually trust this God? How could I actually say with confidence that I'm trusting in God? I have too many doubts. Let me just say this to you from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Your faith doesn't come from yourself. Your faith comes from God. It is a gift of God to you, not of works lest any man should boast. You want to believe? You want to believe? Ask God for the faith to believe. Is anything too hard for him? And finally, some may wonder, could I really be welcomed in by God? I mean, actually welcomed in, like maybe tolerated, <laughs> maybe, maybe forgiven, but welcomed in? Welcomed in as a friend? Like, could that actually be true? Could God, could God look at me as his friend? John chapter 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants does not know what his master is doing. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In Christ, in Christ, our identity moves from the enemy of God to the friend of God. That's actually how God sees the Christian. Now, you might not feel that, but that doesn't change how God sees you. That God does not primarily see you as a sinner, he sees you primarily as a saint. Why? Not because you're good, but because of the righteousness of Christ. God welcomes you in, not as, a, not as a, a, an enemy, but, but as a friend. Why? Because of our great ally and friend, Jesus Christ. You can be welcomed in as a friend. You can know God as friend. You can have a relationship with the one true God. Has Abraham sat and, and enjoyed a meal with Jesus, so too one day will all those who know Jesus. As the Lord appeared to Abram that day in Canaan, as he appeared to him for friendship, and as he came to build up Sarah's faith, centuries later, God would appear again. He would send his son again, this time taking on flesh 
and dwelling among us. He came to bring us back to God. He came to bring us into fellowship with God. He came to bring us into communion and friendship with God. And how did he do that? He did that through his sacrificial life, death, and burial. And as he died for our sins, he offers this new life to you and me for all who would repent and believe. You can know this day God as your friend. Your faith can be strengthened today through the work of Jesus on your behalf. Christ has come for us now. Come to him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for Abraham, for Sarah, and your care and your love for them. Thank you that you are able. Thank you in the testimony of of the Bible itself, we can affirm those truths. Help us to believe them today. Would you increase our faith today to believe your promises, to believe that your word is true, not to make excuses, not to reason it away, but to believe it. God, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming for us. We look forward to your return. Until then, we thank you for your spirit that's with us, who enables us to live and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our God.